Hello and welcome to another episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts. For this episode, I'm really pleased to say we have Joe Swinson, uh, candidate for leader of the Democrats, being interviewed. Um, and let's just plunge straight in. So, Joe, I guess an obvious starting question is why do you want to be leader of Liberal Democrats? Particularly bearing in mind you've been an MP through several previous leadership elections and decided not to run. So why do you want to be leader? Why this time? Looking at our politics now, I think there is a golden opportunity. Our country is crying out for a Liberal movement to take on the forces of populism and nationalism, the likes of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. And in my view, the Liberal Democrats need to be at the heart of that movement, and that's why I want to lead the Liberal Democrats. That also actually provides quite a nice answer to the question Tim Farron recommended oh, wow. uh, that gets asked in Hustings, which is <laughs> yeah. to ask everyone to say in one sentence what their mission is. Well, so go. I guess that is, that is your mission. Yeah. Do you think that, that mission is any different from the perspective you got from not being an MP for two years, that sort of enforced break? Not quite completely from party mm. politics, but certainly that enforced break from Parliament. Well, I certainly think that while it was uh, unintended to not be an MP between 2015 and 2017, I learned a huge amount from that experience. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not good to lose, we'd rather mm. win, but, but yeah, it's often the bigger mm. learning curve. And one of the things that I think is just from engaging with the news, as you know, most people mm. do, where you know you mm. see some of it, but you're not living yeah. day in day out in mm. the in the Westminster bubble, as mm. it were. And this, you know, we're we're sitting here in Parliament. This place mm. you know, is a bubble, and uh, and I think therefore seeing a bit of perspective of what is important mm. and what matters, and it's not the intricacies of who's up, who's mm. down in Westminster. It's actually about people's lives and what of politics yeah. actually punches through into people's mm. lives. It's much less than people around Westminster would often think. Yeah, listeners will be bored of me using the fantastic example from the 2017 general election. So in late uh, May, it would have been, YouGov did a poll where one in five people weren't able to name the leader of the Conservative Party. And that was mid-general election. So so I guess part of of it sounds like um, uh, uh, being reminded of how little attention most people pay to politics. Is there anything else that you think either your views have developed or changed as a result of that period out of Parliament? Well, I certainly think it was also, while I was out of Parliament, I I was able to obviously see it was partly being out of Parliament was partly what was happening. So we had Mm. the Brexit vote and I was campaigning in that uh, and, of course, absolutely dismayed by the result of that and then we had you know the the knock-on effect in Scotland where Nicola Sturgeon then in early 2017 started ramping up plans for independence referendum again and it just seemed to me that this sort of wave of nationalism was was sweeping forward and that that needed a better answer and our politics didn't really have that answer and in fact I think we need to be quite um reflective about how we've got to where we are because the economy and our society hasn't been working well enough for too many people for far too long it it probably was being masked by the fact that living standards were rising in the early 2000s but then in 2008 we had this crash we've then had a decade of wage stagnation and the combined impact of all of that just meant there was such a fertile ground for the, the populists and the nationalists to come in and sort of pour their um, soundbitey answers of this is why mm. it's so difficult yeah. and it's the fault of, you know, immigrants mm. or bankers or, you know, the English mm. or, you know, insert whoever yeah. the villain yeah. is, depending on which brand of, 
or, or sort of nationalism or populism you're looking at. And what you we really needed was those from a liberal mindset or a progressive mindset to have articulated an alternative vision. And I don't think this is something that's just an issue for the UK. I mean, if you look at America yeah. or France or other places, there's also been this gap. And, and that's what we need to fill. That's what this task is about. And Brexit is part of that. But in a sense, Brexit's a symptom of yeah. a wider problem. And one of the things you, in fact, you mentioned in your one-sentence version of your mission and have made a lot of in the leadership campaign so far is this idea of building a liberal movement. And I think it's probably fair to say there seems to be a little bit of difference between yourself and Ed Davey on that, that Ed seems to be emphasising much more if you support us, join the party, whilst you seem to be pitching for a slightly more uh, open approach to people outside the party. So how do you... Well, in a sense, why do you use the phrase liberal movement rather than simply talking about building the Liberal Democrats? I mean, first of all, I absolutely want more people to mm. join the Lib Dems. I'm delighted that 20,000 people have joined mm. us and we've got our highest of our membership figures. And on the day that I launched my campaign, 1,500 people joined the party. So that's brilliant news. We need to grow. Cause, effect. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I'm delighted about it. Um, and so, so we, you know, we, we do need to focus on recruiting people yeah. and bringing people into the Lib Dems. And I recognise that there's lots of people out there, whether it's because they've been involved in a different party or they've just never really wanted mm. to take a look at party yeah. politics, but do identify themselves as a small L liberal, mm. as having liberal values. Mm. And we want to bring those people in and bring them on a journey towards us as a party, but also even if they're not ultimately going to join, to be part of achieving the things mm. that we want to achieve and working in tandem. And I, I just think that that less tribal way of doing politics is what we need here now in 2019 with the rise of you know Farage, with the possibility yeah. of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And I think we saw with some of the debates earlier this year over party reforms that for some people, hearing that sort of uh, vision makes them quite nervous about what does that really mean for the future of the Democrats, who might be welcomed into the party, who might be given votes over party policy, etc. in future. So what's the... I mean, well, let's start with the obvious question. Presumably, if a, a Change UK or TIG MP were to ask to join the Lib Dems, you would be quite welcoming to them? Well, yes. I mean, I to, to sort of go back to what you were saying, I think we should approach this with confidence mm. as Liberal Democrats. Yeah. We should, you know, we've just had our best ever mm. European election results, best local election <coughs> results in terms of gains. So, so, so we're here as the rallying point for, uh, for that Liberal movement and, and we should have confidence in doing that. And also with that sort of confidence, I think comes a degree of grace, actually. You know, we should be gracious to other people who, yeah. uh, who might share some of our aims and we might be able to, to work with to achieve our yeah. goals. And you know, in, if there's people that want to come and join our party, if they share our liberal values, then we should welcome them. Now, it's also important to say it's not for the leader or any prospective leader to to have the final say on this. You know, we're a democratic party. Our members have a say on who will be allowed into membership. Local parties have that veto, if you like. And and obviously, similarly, in terms of, of candidacy, that right is held by, by local members to make those decisions. Yeah, And there's, there was a very interesting set of comments that Alex Wilcox, former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate, former policy committee member and so on. Well, and, um, and, and also LDYS uh, president, I think, when I was... Uh, yes, indeed, a, 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 a key figure for an earlier generation of Liberal Democrat exactly. activists. Um, and he, he posted on Twitter, actually, how he struck up a slightly unlikely, at least to outsiders, 
close friendship with Bob McLennan, yeah. who had joined, uh, was originally one of the, uh, a mem- an, uh, he was originally a member of parliament for the SDP. He then joined the Liberal Democrats and didn't have a particularly liberal approach on quite a few issues to begin with. And the way that Alex described it was that finding himself surrounded by liberals sort of revealed <laughs> Bob's inner liberal core. Yeah. Um, but to me, that raises an interesting question about how high the bar should be for welcoming people into the party, given that actually it may be that as they become acclimatised to being in the Liberal Democrats, as they are no longer whipped to maybe vote another way, they may well become more liberal over time. Yeah. Um, so how, what, what for you is, uh, is the key sort of touchstone of, yes, actually that's somebody we would welcome in? Um, yeah, what's your test for? Are you a liberal? I mean, that's the great thing to devise. Do you know what? I think there's plenty of the party that would be brilliant at going away and doing that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think we shouldn't be necessarily holding people's uh, voting records on everything you know against them. I mean, in the same way that sometimes you know, those of us, Lib Dem MPs, uh, who served in coalition, yeah. have our voting record in coalition kind of thrown at us as if we left our own devices in a Lib Dem government would have voted that same way on everything when clearly we wouldn't have done. And uh, and so I think there's definitely a, a case where um, there'll be some people who have been whipped to vote in particular ways, um, and you know, and, and we just need to kind of recognise that. And this is about looking forward; it is about what people's principles and values are. I think there's some interesting um, uh, ideas about how we might be able to do some of this. So I was speaking to Leila Moran earlier, and she talked about how in Oxford, you know, they've actually had when they had um, discussions with their local Greens and. Is up to you know, local associations will sometimes do this about standing down in particular wards so that they could maximize the number of councillors they would get and defeating the Tories. They sort of had a mini hustings mm. when you know they would they would sort of put the case mm. to local members and, and then members would decide. So I think there's ways in which we could really involve members to actually have the chance to, to sort of ask questions. But I think the point you make about people being on a journey, it's I mean, it's also an important one. And and I guess thinking about what has happened in, in Oxfordshire and Leila Moran's patch and in, in neighbouring areas, there have been some quite formal electoral pacts. There's been a definite trade-off between sort of us not contesting wards against the Greens and the Greens not contesting elections yeah. against us. Um, so do you envisage a, a situation? I guess there are three options, aren't there, on pacts. One is you can say yes to trying to negotiate national pacts. You can say no to pacts of any sort. Or you can say yes, but let local parties decide on a case-by-case basis. Um, which of those three, then, is is your preference? Well, I think it's closest to the third one. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think a, a sort of blanket approach on this probably doesn't mm. allow for the sophistication and the nuance mm. of the situations that we face. Yeah. And, I mean, for example, we didn't stand in Brighton Pavilion last mm. time, uh, Caroline Lucas's seat. And, you know, and, and equally, I know that, you know, they were all knew we had in the mm. by-election. The Greens didn't stand, you know. So, so I think there are there are circumstances where it might make sense. I, equally, I know there's places where you know we're fighting mm. against the Greens, and uh, and absolutely that you know that's not going to be considered. So, I, I just think it has to be bespoke. You know, people in local areas also mm. know their you know you you know your activists, mm. your fellow activists in other yeah. parties, don't you? So they're a better place to to make yeah. those decisions. Obviously, with a first past the post system, in most cases. It's Liberal Democrats who are going to be best placed yeah. to be able to challenge for Westminster seats mm. compared to a party like the Greens. But and we've we've both used the Greens as the obvious and safe example in a way, and also the, the practical one in the sense that there has been, you know, both in Mids Cable's patch and Elena Moran's patch and in Caroline Lucas's patch, there have been some quite explicit agreements and indeed in some other places. Um 
I presume that Change UK and the independent group would also be potentially parties that you could envisage that sort of arrangement with. Um, one thing I've noticed, though, in the leadership sort of debates online so far amongst Liberal Democrat members is particularly Liberal Democrat members in England seem to be rather more willing to think of the SNP as being a fellow pro-Remain party that therefore they might envisage wanting to cosy up to rather than being hostile to. So how, how far beyond the safe, obvious territory of Greens, Change UK, TIG, do you envisage it being possible that local parties might strike deals? Yeah, uh, well, so, I mean, I think this is, this is quite interesting, mm. this, this dynamic. I mean, you know, our top target seat mm. in the country, which we lost by two votes last mm. time, you know, I, I mean, how excruciating to lose by mm. two votes, uh, is in North East Fife, where we've got the fantastic candidate, Wendy Chamberlain, up against the SNP. Mm. And, of course, I, I can understand to an extent from the perspective of, uh, you know, living, if people live in mm. England and they see, what do they see of the SNP on the media? Well, they see them standing up apparently for Remain, kind of forgetting how long they took to get to the position of a people's mm. vote. Um, and, and I think, you know, people feel so strongly that they want to stay in the EU that they have, have this emotional response that says, well, of course, I can understand people in Scotland would want to do that in any mm. possible way. I suppose the difference that I would the perspective I would put is you know I'm Scottish and British and I'm European and I don't want anyone to take away any of those parts of who I am yeah. and to so many people in Scotland you know this is they see the SNP as basically trying to take away that part of being British and for all that the government at the moment in Westminster is clearly an absolute shambles you know you don't break up a successful 300-year partnership because there's a particular shambles of a government. And, and all of the arguments for why Brexit is a bad idea actually are pretty much the same arguments for why Scotland leaving the UK is a bad idea in terms of our trade, in terms of our shared heritage, our culture, the people who live have families across borders. And so, so, you know, so that debate in Scotland is an emotional one, not just about us being in the European Union, but it's also about us being in, in the United Kingdom. Mm. And so so we are very firmly a, a party that, that wants to stay mm. in the UK because we believe in working mm. with other countries. And I, for one, haven't given up mm. on the dream of Scotland being in the UK yeah. and the UK in the EU. So that sort of is a no to it being likely that under Joe Swinton leadership there would be local deals with the SNP. A definite no. I suspect SNP members might have might have a thing or two to say about that. I, I don't think you'd get a different response from my, uh, my, my rival of the uh, leadership election yeah. either. Um, I guess one, one area, though, where, as well as this sort of question about openness to sort of people outside the party, there's been at least a difference of tone between you and Ed so far. Um, there's also been a little bit of difference, I think, in terms of what you've each said about the party's record in coalition. So just be useful to sort of turn to that uh, for, for a few minutes. Um, I guess starting point, what, if anything, do you think we got wrong when we were in coalition? So we were right to go into coalition. And I think we got a lot of the big calls right. And obviously we did a huge amount of good from same-sex marriage mm. to more money for poorer pupils mm. to... Uh, the Green Investment Bank, to taking people low earnings out of paying income mm. tax, to all the stuff we did in biz, or crack, cracking down mm. on payday lenders, mm. and rogue employers, and uh, you know flexible working. And, uh, you know we, we know the amazing list of achievements, and we should feel rightly proud of those and celebrate those. I think if we're going to celebrate those achievements, I think we need to recognise the areas where we failed. Mm. 
And, you know, I think the bedroom tax is an example mm. of a policy that we just should not have let through. Uh, uh, and I think we also, uh, on tuition fees, actually, if you look at the technical detail of the policy, mm. which is effectively a graduate tax, it's much more progressive than the system that it uh, replaced in terms of when people start paying back and actually delivered a lot more people from low-income backgrounds going to university with grants, with mm. bursaries. The policy... You know, was was pretty mm. good, but there was a fundamental point that we'd signed the pledge. Mm. We said we wouldn't mm. do it, uh, raise tuition fees, and, and we did, mm. and that was wrong. And I and I just think we need to recognise these things if we're going to move beyond and have a wider hearing. Because if we haven't learned from that, then you know why would people think that that we won't be making those mistakes again? So if there is a hung parliament, and actually the odds are moderately high, there may be a general election this year and a hung parliament before Christmas. Um, what should the Liberal Democrat approach be? Because in a way, I mean, we are currently in a hung parliament, but we, the Liberal Democrats were slightly let off the hook in the sense that there was never really any expectation the Lib Dems might have to make a choice once again between you know, whether or not to put a particular party leader in as Prime Minister yeah. or not. That may well, however, be a choice that we have, and who knows? We may even be one of the largest parties. But if there, is an, if there is a hung parliament again, what do you think we need to do differently in terms of how we, how we approach it? Well, I, I mean, I think that the current Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn, who is a Brexiteer, and whatever the outcome of the Conservative leadership election, we are confident that mm. the, uh, the Prime Minister from the Conservative Party uh, you know, that we're about to see installed is going to be a Brexiteer. Neither of those are people that we mm. could possibly be putting into uh, the power of, of, of government. And so that is a very different yeah. situation. Obviously, we want to have as big a Lib Dem group there as mm. possible, and I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be aiming to be the largest party. You know, I, I recognise the, uh, the, the audacity mm. of that in a sense, but we're living in very volatile mm. times, and I think in the country, people looking at, say, a Boris Johnson mm. and Jeremy Corbyn choice... Mm. There is a huge number, mm. millions and millions of people that will look at that and want a genuine alternative, and we need to be that. So, so, so uh, unlike it, so in twenty ten, one of the calculations the party took, for better or worse, yeah. was that um, there had to be something stable formed after the election, yeah. and that if there was then an, a second general election in twenty ten in short order, that would have been bad for the country and probably also quite bad yeah. for us as a yeah. party. It sounds like, however, you're suggesting that if there's a hung parliament later this year. And you know, it's it's quite conceivable that the Liberal Democrat line under your leadership would be, well, actually, we're not going to put the leader of the Labour Party in as Prime Minister. We're not going to put the leader of the Tory Party in as Prime Minister. If that means a second general election a few weeks later, so be it. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I think so. That election said, agents maybe, well, <laughs> maybe may getting sweaty palms. I, I don't think it necessarily that, would be that though. I mean, you know, there's there's a there's a lot that can be done ultimately in terms of you know voting on mm. you know where there is agreement i also think we should be doing the groundwork in advance of a general election mm. to try to create a situation where there are as many mps as possible mm. like even if there's no majority in parliament mm. could there be a majority for people who back electoral mm. reform in this fragmenting mm. system but there would still need to be a vote at some point on who gets to be prime minister yeah and um, and that is that's going to be well i was going to say it's going to be one person i presume one person although maybe one shouldn't rule out a job share maybe that is Part, part of part of a solution that you would you would suggest but there is going to in that sense have to be a yes or no choice on should this person be 
prime minister and that will be somebody from a particular party. So there is a choice that, that we will be forced to make. Well, we don't need to endorse either of them, though, right? And, and yeah. I, I, I just think that it is so fundamentally opposite to our values. Um, and obviously, particularly, who knows whether Brexit's resolved in this circumstance mm. or, or whether it's not. Um, uh, then, you know, obviously, could you um, create in that scenario, if you've not already had it, you know, enough to get a people's mm. vote? You know, could could there be somebody else who is actually not the leader of one yeah. of those main parties who could um, who could be installed to have a cross-party mandate to deliver a people's vote? I mean, I think we need to be very creative and open-minded. I mean, the attempt that um, Oliver Letwin and others as a cross-party grouping mm. had today to try to get parliamentary time has sadly failed by about uh, uh, 11 votes. But, uh, you know... There's a lot of different procedural mm. tactics that are being used, and, and I just think we need to be open-minded and creative about that. It, it sounds like the, the plans to put Ersk in May, the parliamentary sort of procedural bible, online and so finally available for free for anyone to read rather than to pay hundreds of pounds, that's going to happen very soon. That's going to be very well-timed, because in, in that sort of situation, there's going to be an awful lot of procedural, yeah, procedural rambling. Exactly. Do you think there's enough experience of parliamentary procedure in the Liberal Democrats? parliamentary party to really make the most of that sort of situation because one thing that has struck me over the last few years since 2015 is although there are some people like Alistair Carmichael who have got huge amounts of, of experience it feels like quite often the most inventive thinking about how to use parliamentary procedure has come from people in other parties. Well I mean I think we still have it within our parliamentary party and indeed also within our perhaps extended alumni you know there's the the David Harris and uh, mm. and David Heaths in fact for that matter you know who uh, who we can still call on and, uh, and and speak to about these matters and and actually you know it's about us working mm. cross party I've been very involved in the people's vote movement and the regular meetings you know which are attended by amongst other people Dominic Grieve mm. now I mean in terms of sort of legal mm. and procedural brain you know he is difficult to beat yeah. and so you know given that we are trying to achieve the same thing I, I think you can get a bit too hung up on whether or not the Liberal Democrats have to get the credit mm. for leading a particular initiative yeah when we should be focusing on what the grand prize is, which is yeah. stopping Brexit. Um, turning to a different policy area, the environment, which again is one that both you and Ed have talked about, mm -hmm. um, but for the purpose of this interview, looking at what you have said particularly, mm -hmm. and in fact, if I remember rightly, it's the first of your sort of three policy policy areas that set out in, in, in your sort of vision statement on your website, where you talk about an economy that puts uh, people and the planet first. Um, I guess most Liberal Democrat members, probably all, pretty much all Liberal Democrat members, will will find that a sentiment they find yeah. very easy to agree with. The question it prompts in my mind is that sort of phraseology about an economy that puts people and the planet first is quite widely used across all parties. And I mean, I googled it yeah. uh, last night, and there's a pamphlet from somebody else that's used that. You know, there are, it, it it's a widely used phrase. Yeah. And, is it really a distinctive enough policy then? As you know, as, as the first of your three policy things to mention, something that lots of people across outside even liberal trains of thought say. Well, say but not doing, mm. right? Because we haven't done this mm. as a country. And I think, I mean, the climate emergency that we face is well documented. The IPCC warnings are stark. And yet the pace and level of our ambition still seems far too slow. And, and in terms of people, you know, I think this is a really important part of the message because it hasn't been working. Effectively, the deal, that social contract is broken and has been for some time. 
Now, the causes of Brexit are complex, but part of it is that there have been very legitimate grievances that have not been addressed. And so I think this is actually radical. It is about transforming the way we focus our economy. What is the purpose of the economy? And at the moment, it seems like the economy, you know, we have you know, businesses, you know, trying to create profit and then pay tax and then government tries to do the, the nice things providing yeah. services. And that to me mm. seems quite an outdated mm. model. There's a lot of economic dogma that needs to be uh, challenged. What we should be doing is setting out as a country mm. what our ambitions and goals are. Now, I've got strong views mm. on that. I think tackling the climate emergency, I think dealing with mm. poverty and inequality so people have got dignity and also health and, and well-being should be key goals. But I also recognise that if we want to have a united mm. country, we need to involve the public in that debate about what those priorities should be. And then the economy should be the servant of that. So not only what our public spending is on, what our public services try to deliver, but also what the businesses involved in our economy try to do. We should be using the innovation, the entrepreneurial flair of, uh, of the power of business to, to achieve those goals. Business should have to set out a social purpose, for example. We should have transparency, so there's climate risk reporting, so investors can understand um, how to move their money to lower risk, greener assets. Part of this is about creating a much longer term culture rather than it being about next week's share price. So, but, but what in there is there that, say, Ed Miliband or Caroline Lucas wouldn't say? Well, maybe, maybe there's not. Um, but is that enough then say. for a political message for a party that that needs to win votes? Well, um, as I say, you know, say I mean, you know, there's people who have supported mm. the Labour Party and the Green mm. Party who would be very happy to have mm. voting for the Liberal Democrats, mm. um, and uh, and I think that this is it's a you know it's a key it's a key thing that needs to change. You know, the economy is basically mm. broken, and it and it needs to mm. work better. So you know, setting out that message. Mm along with those examples that I've just given you of some of the concrete ways in which we try yeah. to address that, I think is absolutely key. Okay, and then just moving on to a couple of other final sort of topics. Um, is, is there anything that you envisage sort of doing or saying as party leader that would be particularly controversial with either most party members or a good chunk of party members? Um, things that, well, I, I mean... I think we need to be much more inclusive digitally mm. with our members yeah. and use new tools. Now, with some people, that'll be absolutely mm. uncontroversial. Um, but uh, with some people who you know like the way that we've always done things mm. for the last 30 years, you that of, might be controversial. You think of party conference. Well, I, think, I think conference, yeah. absolutely. So I do not think that your ability to have a say in how this party sets mm. its policy... Um, and the direction of the party should only be for people who can take a week off work, spend hundreds of pounds to go to a seaside town and, uh, and not have other responsibilities to enable them to participate in that way. Yeah. I love conference. I've been going to conference for more than 20 years. And I want us to have a vibrant. I feel conference. at this point I should say only twenty years. Thinking when I first went to conference, twenty-one <laughs> years. Anyway, um, but uh, but at the same time, you know. The world is different mm. than, than when I joined the party yeah. 21 years ago. The ability that we have to to, to transact with other elements mm. of our lives has been revolutionised mm. by the internet. And our ability, to, the way in which we um, interact with the Liberal Democrats has not changed in anything like the same way. We do we do things on Facebook mm. groups instead of on the Kix mm. conferencing system, which I remember in mm. my early days. Um, 
but that's kind of the the, the main way in yeah. which that digital has changed it and i think we need to be much more uh, innovative and open to to involving people and i think this will help us involve more members and the other thing i think is that although local parties are obviously incredibly important not everybody is going to want to engage in their particular constituency where they live i mean it might be that they are more interested in their sort of uh, sao you know their mm. interest group through their profession or issues that they're mm. interested in it might be that they live in that area and they work mm. in a different area and it makes more sense yeah. for them to be involved where they work and at the moment that's actually quite difficult mm. for people to they have to sort yeah. of do that automatically and rather than giving yeah. people choice as to how they get their different information yeah. and interact with the party and there's also i think something where even if people are maybe living in an area and expecting to live there for a while certainly my experience quite often is is coming across people who say I've got a real interest in using digital and how can the party they help the party's digital campaigning and they find their local party not quite off-putting but because the local party say very focused on local politics and trying to win some council seats and to win the next target council ward that there's just a little bit of a mismatch there that they're interested yeah they think that the local council matters and so on but it's not the primary thing yeah, they want exactly. to get stuck into and the local party in a way, in a really good sense, is really stuck into that, and yeah. and and I suspect we lose quite a lot of. Yeah. Um, but twenty miles away, a there's a different yeah. local party that would love that mm. that input. So yeah. so yeah, I think I think we yeah. could we yeah. could and do, do this. And do you have any particular ideas in mind yet as to how, well, how to do that? I think we need to look at internationally. I mean, I've heard of different examples. I was having a conversation uh, earlier this week, um, and and some information is sort of coming through about that about how how you know, how parties are doing mm. this in other parts of the world, yeah. where you know people can sort of vote up different ideas. Mm. And uh, and have that yeah have that sort of community. I don't know whether it's a Lib Dems app mm. or or mm. similar, but you you need to clearly think through the functionality. Yeah. But um, but but I I think yeah we need to sort of reinvent the mm. way in which people can engage, yeah. especially with these huge numbers of new members, which is a great resource that we really need to make the most of. And uh, you know I'm so excited that so many of our previous batch of new members are now councillors, MEPs in some cases and so on. But I also think that we've probably missed a bit of a trick. I don't think that we have mm. um, activated or involved yeah. as many of those as we could have done. And one issue, just to sort of come on to the fi final question then, which I guess that touches on, although I, interestingly I don't think you, you've sort of mentioned directly yet, is how we improve the party's diversity. Because again, for example, the mode of being involved at the party at a national level by going to party conference is quite exclusive in many ways in terms of the cost involved and the time yeah. you have to take away from say caring responsibilities etc but more broadly what would what what would you intend to do to help improve the party's ability to tap the expertise and the knowledge and the enthusiasm of, of all of those who support uh, liberalism or all of those who support liberal democracy rather than the rather atypical slice who currently tend to be the yeah. ones who get involved and elected to parliaments and so on I think the first thing we need to do is to count. Mm. We need to uh, understand what our membership is like in terms mm. of uh, diversity and therefore also where the gaps are. We need to be honest with ourselves. Like I've been to quite a few hustings already, mm. uh, including mm. in uh, you know in diverse mm. cities like London, and the hustings are still incredibly white. Mm. And I've been to party conference after party mm. conference where. The, the mix of speakers from the conference mm. platform is still overwhelmingly male. And that's with mm. chairs trying to do what they can yeah. to, 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 to even up that gender balance. So we need to be mm. honest with ourselves and count. And then I think we all have a responsibility. And this is where, I mean, I changed my views significantly on all women shortlists. Mm. So in 2001, I campaigned hard against it. And 
you know, I've been working on this issue in the party for nearly 20 years, set up the campaign for gender balance. We did some really good stuff and it still does excellent stuff. But ultimately, I was disappointed uh, in how seriously leadership within the party, in the broadest sense, not just the federal leader, but wider leadership within the party, how seriously people took this issue. And you know, we actually need this to be on everyone's plate. We need this to be people's problem, a local party having to think about how do we properly reach out to those who haven't been council candidates. And there's great examples where this has been done. Places like Islington, where you know they, they actually achieved brilliantly diverse council group when we ran the council mm. there. Um, so, so I think there's examples of how this can be done, but it, it doesn't just happen, and we really need to shake off any complacency mm. that we have as a party about this, because we're not, we're not there yet, mm. we're not yet living the values mm. that we hold true to. Yeah, and one thing that strikes me, um, it struck me a bit at the time, but particularly in retrospect, looking back at our time in government, that not only did we have a sort of fully male complement of cabinet ministers all the way through the five years, which is not great really, but also it wasn't really that much of a matter of controversy in the party. Yeah. And my impression is that in that respect, actually, the party has moved on quite a lot. That I've noticed, for example, at Hustings meetings now, it is a relatively easy applause line for either you or Ed to say, we need to improve our diversity yeah. in a way that it probably wouldn't have been 10 years ago. Um, but I wonder how quickly that applause might melt away in the face of actually taking action. Well, I think it's 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 a good point. I, I mean, you know, I cabinet issue. You know, I made this point to, to Nick privately uh, on on lots of occasions. Equally on things like our appointments for the House of Lords. You know, I mean, I kept the numbers. I kept sending in lots of good examples because you know we're not actually short of you know talented people from underrepresented. Well, we are short of them, but you know there's certainly plenty to be able when, to when you to need do to find list. a exactly. small handful for the Lords. There's it's, certainly it's, plenty. It's to certainly from, doable, yeah. and uh, and so you know I I've sort of. Uh, banged my head against the brick wall privately and internally in the party on this for, for, for many a year. And, I mean, you're right, it gets an applause line. I think it might have got an applause line 10 years ago. Mm. Um, but that sometimes it will um, it, it will be challenging. And I have to say, I hugely respect the leadership of someone like Willie Rennie. Mm. Because Willie recognised that this needed to change and that we needed to take on that issue. And he particularly started with the gender issue in Scotland, particularly when we had... Uh, our only uh, woman MSP effectively deselected, mm. despite being absolutely amazing. Alison McInnes having taken the SNP to task mm. on justice and the, mm. the botched um, issues around Police Scotland, and and he 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 basically took on some of the people mm. in the party that said this isn't that important. And what I welcomed was that he was prepared to use his own mm. political capital to advance the mm. issue, and that was the point that previously leaders hadn't mm. done they had been happy to do things and support mm. initiatives up to and until the point at which it became mm. difficult mm. and and at that point it just wasn't yeah. the most important thing and, and to his credit tim farron did that as well in the all yeah. women shortlist debate exactly the party conference he exactly. he um you know he didn't he, he sort of contributed, as it were as an ordinary member from the floor you yes. know um but i think there was a little bit of theater around that but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He stepped up to take part and exactly. make very clear his view. Exactly, and and I think and I think we need that. And you know, this is a this is about what's right. It's mm. about the democracy and the representation that we need. It's about making sure that we recognise our privilege. Mm. I mean, you know, I sit here as a white middle class mm. woman, and so I recognise some of the challenges around 
uh, gender, but I also have huge advantages uh, because of my mm. upbringing, because of my skin mm. colour. You know, I just never get racially abused in the street. Mm. I've never been stopped and searched by the police. Mm. You know, if I was a, a, a Muslim woman mm. wearing a hijab, I would have been yeah. abused in the street. If I was a, a young black man, mm. I would have been stopped and mm. searched. I mean, that is the reality of the, the society mm. we live in. And we need to listen to others' experiences. Um, you know, you know, one of the books that I've found mm. most thought-provoking on this is Rennie Edo Lodge's mm. book, which is why I'm no longer talking to mm. white people about race, which I hugely recommend mm. people yeah. uh, read. Because we need to understand the perspectives of others and just not fall into this complacency that we've got this sussed and I I just I really would would caution against that I think sometimes we can get a bit of success mm. and we should celebrate it yeah. but we also need to benchmark against the actual population that we are seeking to represent that's what our aim should be excellent and that is a brilliant note on which to end the interview so thank you very much for your time Joe. it's much appreciated thank you very much Mark and uh, loving the bar charts so great great title for a podcast thank you Well, I hope you found that interview with Joe Swinson as illuminating as I did. There will also be an interview with Ed Davey, the other candidate, of course, to be leader of the Liberal Democrats, coming up on Nevermind the Bar Chart in a few days' time. So if you're not yet subscribed to this podcast in your favourite podcast app, now is a really great time to subscribe. Make sure you see that episode appear for you as well. Stephen and I will then also be recording a third special episode where we reflect back on what we each made of the two interviews and it'll be great to hear feedback from listeners as well you can find Nevermind the Bar Charts on Facebook the imaginatively named page Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast and you can also find us on Twitter at Bar Chart Podcast please do let us know what you made of the interview with Joe Swinson and then the one with Ed Davey when that appears as well and thanks very much as ever for listening <laughs>